All right. Wow, we're just growing and growing. This is wonderful. It's a good thing. And uh, I wanted to share uh, a couple of thoughts uh, uh, prefacing our class today. Um, the first thought is that happy Hanukkah to anyone who's celebrating Hanukkah. And, uh, this, and the other things I want to say are, our, our last class of this series is the next week, next Thursday. Matthew has to go down to uh, help his mom, who's having surgery. So uh, he, he won't be able to be here next week, which is uh, too bad, of course. Uh, Suzanne and Susan Ockenclaw, Suzanne Guthrie, they, they will again lead the classes with me next week to conclude our series. However, Matthew and I feel like we're just getting rolling here. And uh, we, we have one date that we can let you know about that I'll know more about next week. Uh, we have a weekend in March, the first weekend in March, where we want to do, you know how, if you were here last week, Matthew talked about the difference between interfaith and interspiritual, um, which I think interspiritual is a, a really recent term, and I think it's very useful. Would you define it again, Carolyn? Sure. Yeah, the basic idea was that interfaith is the, the conversation over the last hundred years between people of goodwill in the various traditions who say, let's get to go know our neighbor, and it, it has tended to happen at the social and intellectual levels. So it's been, let's talk about what we believe, you tell me what you believe, I tell you what I believe, and we'll do it around an interfaith dinner or a shared service project. Um, so that's wonderful, and it's been very needed, and it's brought great healing. Uh, interspiritual is sort of a next step. It's a term coined in the late 90s by a Roman Catholic monk, Wayne Teasdale, and he said this is the level of dialogue between traditions that happens at the contemplative and the experiential level, at the level of practice across traditions. So instead of asking the interfaith question, what do you believe, it asks the inner spiritual question, how do you pray? How do you practice? And it looks for connection at that level. How can we share those practices? How can we um, share the interior spiritual resources and treasures of our traditions across the old lines that have separated us? So in addition to what do you believe and what do you think, what's your experience when this happens? And that's a beautiful thing because then you're not trying to convince somebody of something or a stake out ground. It's like, oh, well, that was interesting. Here was my experience. In, so, I, we're, so that term, interspiritual, I'm finding very useful. Uh, so in the first weekend of March, we're going to have a weekend that I think we'll call the mystical heart of Judaism and Christianity. And we're, we're not just going to sit in the classroom. We're going to invite everyone to services on Shabbat at the synagogue. And we're going to invite everyone to uh, services on Sunday at the church, and we're going to have a lot of programming in between so that we can actually experience each other's ritual and worship and uh, participate in whatever level um, anyone wants to. So this was not necessarily for everybody, but, it's, uh, but I, feel, I feel like I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, food? Be food. Oh yeah. Um, so we haven't got the format all worked out yet, but what we want to make sure we have 
is uh, everybody's email, which we'll collect next week also, uh, so that we can communicate to you clearly what the weekend is going to be. But that'll be our next foray in March. And then, March 5th and 6th. yeah, yeah, March 4th, 5th, 6th. 4th, 5th, 6th. That's right, that weekend. Uh, I'm very pleased about that. And we'll have room for chanting together, for silence together. You know, we started to get a little taste of that last week, that experiential, you know, brief moment where we just went into some silence and we went into some heart space. And so we want a lot more of that in that weekend together. So it's not just our talking heads. Right, right. Our talking hearts. Yeah. Um, our hearts and heads. Good. So we'll be telling you more about that. We just cooked it up. Um, now when is that? March? March 4th, 5th, 4th through 6th. Yeah, Easter, I think, is the 27th. Right. So we won't do it that weekend. We won't do it that weekend. But it would be nice to, to get that experience incorporated somehow. We'll find out. Okay. You now know everything we know. But we're going we're gonna to now, we'll put our heads together. Um, now, the other thing I want to share, and then I'm going to give the floor to Matthew, is the, the frame of reference that's kind of been bowling me over. It's not, it's, it's you know how we, I usually would say I think of my Jewish identity as something discrete. It's my identity. And in the course of this exploration together, one of the things that's happening inside for me is recognizing, and again, I'm not the first person to recognize this, I'm just recognizing it now, how Jewish identity and Christian identity are completely inter, uh, interlinked, either in opposition to each other through history, in interaction with each other, in defining oneself against the other, in having shared origins, in hating each other, um, all of it uh, means that, in a way, in a way, I can't really talk about my Jewish Judaism or Jewishness separate from someone else's Christianity. Uh, it's all of a interlinked uh, mess. <laughs> We're one for better or worse. For better or worse, and so. I just wanted to share that with you, that, you know, when you study Jewish history, you know that you will find out that much of Judaism's self-understanding grew in its relationship to defending itself against, surviving with, incorporating practices of sort of um, just by osmosis, Christian, the, the, the Christian world. And... Um, there's no separating it, and at the same time, uh, Christianity has a uh, relationship to Judaism is so inseparable from Christian uh, history and identity, and I've been thinking about that. I I'll, I'm going to keep thinking about it. Uh, it just convinces me, persuades me even more to, to, to kind of reach past um, my comfort zone in terms of... Uh, how identity formation is very fluid and also not a self-contained affair. Uh, that's what I was thinking. And certainly as we explore today into the realm of how Christian anti-Semitism took root, uh, um, when you think about a relationship between uh, 
oppressor and victim. It's an incredibly intertwined relationship also. And how do we tease that out and go forward without, you know, there are many efforts in the Christian world in the last 50 years to try to start untangling that. That's what we're participating in. And yet, uh, there's no way to, uh, in, for me, to step over 1,800 years of history into why can't we all be friends. I can't do that without exploring the history of our relationship. So uh, that's just the, since, since, since I get to have the floor, I get to share what's been going through my mind. So that's what I've been thinking about. So Matthew. Sure. So we're going to finally delve into some of the really painful uh, material that we've been tiptoeing around for several weeks. And uh, we intended to last week, and we got diverted. And so we're definitely um, going to dive into this uh, subject of anti-Semitism, uh, Christian anti-Semitism today. And after our experience last week, when Jonathan called us to silence for just a moment, uh, it seemed so crucial. It brought such an important element into our conversation that we drop for a moment out of our busy headspace into our hearts and into our bodies. And so I wanted to begin um, by saying a word about the heart uh, as it's understood in Christianity. And then Jonathan's going to say a word about that in uh, Judaism. And, uh, and then just open with a chant that really pulls us into the heart. And then we'll do a little silence before we move into the material. <clears throat> The heart in, in the earliest centuries of, of the Christian church, uh, when Christians started going out into the deserts to move out from under the sway of the Roman Empire and the power structures that were starting to affect uh, Christianity, uh, communities formed that were called the, the desert mothers and fathers, you know, the early monastic communities. And they talked again and again about the hard work of drawing the mind into the heart. And they said that this is ultimately... You know, the whole of the spiritual journey is to draw the mind into the heart. And our mind, it's really our faculty of, of dualistic perception. Our mind sees in terms of either, either or. Um, this rational faculty, God bless it, we need it to move through the world, uh, but it tends to um, cut things apart, calculate, quantify, uh, measure. And they realize that 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 faculty alone could keep us in this really dualistic, oppositional kind of turf. And they talked about the heart, not the way in English we talk about it. In English, we tend to talk about the heart as the seat of our emotions. It's where all of our sort of gushy-mushy feelings hang out. Uh, the early Christians talked about the heart as the organ of spiritual perception. And it was actually the eye that allowed us to see from oneness, or that allowed us to see from wholeness. And so the idea is we take this dualistic, oppositional mind, we draw it down into the, the nectar, into the vibration of the heart, and, and we're able to see and know from a deeper place of unity. Um, Christianity, of course, would quickly move out into the Roman world. It would become rooted in creeds and believing the right things and get really stuck back up in that headspace really soon. But it's nice to call our attention back to, um, to this heart awareness. So I want us to taste that heart-centeredness, but I wonder if Jonathan oh, yeah. could say what the heart is in Judaism. So in, in Judaism, because we're a language-based tradition, we look to the Hebrew, <clears throat> and we look to the way heart, the word lev, 
our Hebrew name of the synagogue is Kehilat Lev Shalem, which means the congregation of the full heart. We chose that very intentionally, of course. Uh, so the word Lev means heart. And in the Bible, there, Lev is clearly the seat of consciousness, right? It's the mind, it's the heart mind. Heart mind. Um, and in biblical Hebrew, when people are talking about Lev, they're talking about, they took it to heart, as it'll say when Jacob hears what his kids are saying, you know, he, uh, um, it means that he kept it in mind, the way we would say, but the Bible has no such distinction. So we have the distinction, heart and mind. The Bible does not have that distinction in biblical Hebrew, which is cool. So when uh, um, uh, it's time to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the sanctuary that's going to house the, ta the tablets and the presence of God, Moses is call, calls on everyone who is chokhmat lev, which means wise of heart, in order to craft all of the paraphernalia and make all of the hangings and make all of the for the sanctuary. And Bitzalel, the artist who's singled out, is singled out because he is wise of heart, uh, generous of heart. The, so over and over in biblical Hebrew, it's clear that heart means um, uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. And is is instead of pointing up here, we would point here uh, for that where that wisdom is located, right? If we're following biblical Hebrew, so that carries through in Judaism, and I I imagine it might have influenced the early church fathers too. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it's a useful, it's a very useful um, distinction that uh, Matthew's making. So uh, in Christianity, it begins with uh, teachings of Jesus. He, he, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we tend to hear that in terms of blessed are the pure in heart now, for they shall see God later. Uh, but the early tradition understood God as, as that, that unitive, uh, that oneness that binds all things together. And when the eye of the heart is cleansed, is pure, you see God. You're conscious of God. You see that unity. Uh, here and now, and and it runs. Yeah, Jonathan. The rabbinic phrase is that's in our Amida. That's quite ancient. Is v'taher libenu la'ovdecha be'emet. This is an ancient rabbinic phrase. Purify our hearts that we might serve you in truth. Mm -hmm. So that we pray that in the Amida every day. Beautiful, beautiful. So this idea of purifying the heart so that you can see God here and now. And, and it carries through in the Islamic tradition as well. The Sufi tradition talks again and again about the work of polishing the mirror of the heart so that it can then reflect the divine qualities in the world. So I want us just to taste this for a moment. Uh, and so often our seat of awareness is our head. Uh, our, our, that's where we are. And then the body is something that carries our head around. But I, I want to just play with the way attention actually works. Um, let me read one more quote here. This is an early uh, Christian, Philotheus of Sinai. Let us go forth with the heart completely attentive and the soul fully conscious. For if attentiveness and prayer are daily joined together, they become like Elijah's fire-bearing chariot, raising us to heaven. What do I mean? A spiritual heaven with sun, moon, and stars, 
is formed in the blessed heart of one who has reached a state of watchfulness or who strives to attain it. And Solomon, in the book of Kings, prays for a lev shomea when he's praying to God, which means an attentive heart. One of the sayings of, um, of God through the prophet Muhammad is also, uh, the whole universe cannot contain me, but the heart of my faithful servant can. The sense that the whole cosmos can't contain divine reality, but in some way, sort of holographically, the heart can contain the fullness of God. That's right. The psalm says, God hears those who have shattered the prayers of the shattered hearts. Again, it's a beautiful line in psalm. So let's just play with attention. So, like I said, normally it's up here in our heads. But see if you can move attention down to your feet. Move your awareness, your attention into your feet. Do they kind of tingle a little bit? Come alive? Now try moving attention up into the palms of your hands. And now try drawing your attention, your awareness into your heart center. Which is, it's not not the physical heart, but it's not only the physical heart. It's this chest center. And you might try anchoring your awareness in your heart using your breath. You can almost imagine that you're breathing through your heart. And that early desert tradition, the words, the qualities that associated with this heart center were words like gentleness, tenderness, Warmth, sweetness, humility, so we'll we'll come back to this after the chant, but do you get a little sense of what it's like to hold awareness in a different place other than your head? Mm-hmm. A little taste of that. Um, mm-hmm. It's a more embodied place of knowing. Um, and it's not that mind goes away. It's just coming from a little bit of a deeper place. It's that heart-mind. They're working together. So the chant that I wanted to, to open us with, the words are simply, open my heart. And as we move into some really painful history, um, that's my hope, is that we can keep our hearts open, because often we will feel them shutting down. And that's okay, too. Sometimes we need to close our hearts. Um, but that, that we keep coming back and opening again, you know? And it's like as the heart beats, it opens and closes. We need both expansion and contraction. Um, so there are two parts of this chant. The first, and they, they layer over each other. There are actually more, but we're going to learn two of them. The first goes, let me see if I can start it high enough to get all the notes in. Open my heart, open my heart, open my heart, open my heart, open my heart. 
And the second goes, Open my heart, 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 open my heart. Beautiful. So we'll start with that first line. And as you feel moved to, you can layer in that second line. And you'll notice that there's a point about midway in the chant where a dissonance is created. And that's intentional on the part of the, the chant writer. Her name is Ana Hernandez. And she said that we hit those points of dissonance and tension, and we want to close down. We want to drop the chant right there. But if we hold through it, it allows the heart, allows something to open. And in a way, we're going to be hitting those moments of dissonance and tension today with our subject material. And, and our hope is that we can hold the dissonance and that out of it, something healing, reconciling will emerge. So, so let's uh, begin first just letting awareness drop into our hearts again. And feeling our breath. <coughs> Open my heart, 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 open my heart.
now still breathing through our hearts. Feeling that open, spacious heart-mind. See if you can allow the awareness, the field of your heart to expand out beyond your body in such a way that your heart is no longer in your body, but you are in your heart. and feel the way the fields of our hearts are touching and communicating with each other. Feel the way we're one heart beating together. And as we move through our conversation, uh, let's keep coming back to this sense of uh, heart-centered, heart-rootedness. Maybe as we move into conversation, we can just pause ever so often and return. Does anyone want to just say a brief word about what it feels like to anchor awareness in your heart uh, before we dive in? Feels to me um, a place of clarity. Mm. Um, there's no real emotion. Mm -hmm. It just is the suchness mm -hmm. of things and a place to. Um, I studied with a man who. We, this is what we did. Um, exercise the heart and um, to live in that every day or try to especially when the wind comes mm -hmm. or the hurricane comes is um, very profound mm -hmm. so it feels like no matter what is coming at me it's, I can deal with it mm -hmm. a place of clarity and of suchness and also a place that, that there isn't a sense of emotion she said um, our emotions often cloud the clarity of the heart. Our emotions race in, and what tends to happen, emotion is initially felt as sensation in your body. But then very quickly, the, our mental center writes, spends a narrative around that sensation. And that narrative is me-centered, and how I've been hurt or how I've been wounded, and a whole narrative, and boundaries come up around it. And it, it not only then shuts us off to the other person we're interacting with, it shuts us off from our own clear heart space. Uh, and so to come back and breathe through the heart, to feel emotion as sensation in your body, uh, and to see where the emotion is residing in your body. Where is it? 
grabbing? Where is it holding? And to enter into that uh, rather than letting the mind uh, start to grab hold of the emotion and, and write a story around it. Uh, and and I, I think we'll feel that. We'll feel emotions coming up as we uh, discuss some of these issues around anti-Semitism. And if we can feel the emotion in our body, say, where are we feeling this? Where is it hitting us? And then see if we can also, in the middle of that, touch back into that clear heart. Yeah. Any, any other thoughts, Steve? Um, if this isn't appropriate for the moment, just shut me off, but it occurred to me as you were talking that on some level, every bit of drug taking uh, that's such a plague uh, with, uh, you know, especially young people, I mean, starting drinking and, and pot smoking and then going on to other more exotic drugs on some level, of course, is an effort to get into the heart. Mm. And uh, I don't know if... I don't know if the, the efforts to, when people get in trouble, is framed in that way, but it seems to me that every moment you you take a drug, you want to get out of yourself or your head and into a more uh, spiritual uh, feeling level. Every, every time. I, I can't imagine it not being there. You're right. It's not a topic for us to go into now because we want to stay on anti-Semitism. It is an important topic. Um, and uh, drugs can be used in a variety of ways, to open one to deeper experiences or to self-medicate and <laughs> shut you off to your own deepest experience, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and often that self-medication prevents us from touching our own true, clear heart. Um, Angela, but let's not, let's not stay with this thread. It's an important thing, but it's for another time. Sorry. I understand yeah. you said that because what that talked to me about is the desire find that yeah. oneness and something you said way 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 back in the beginning about younger brother older brother and dysfunctional families mm -hmm. and what we, we where the oh, maybe it was you who said it was um, the older brother was when the uh, the followers of the way were beating were trying to beat up on on their older brother Judaism mm -hmm. um, and then they became the imperial um, religion so then the younger brother is now able to decimate his the older, older brother, brother who is now infirm and 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 this now it's like it's a family thing yeah. isn't it always yes so that's that's certainly the dynamic that we're going to be looking into and, and and I want to preface this by saying like I come to this topic with so much fear and trembling and as I thought about it such deep shame uh, deep, deep shame that I am part of a tradition and I wear the symbols of a tradition that has done so much uh, damage, that has created such pain, such trauma um, within a segment of the human family and within the human family as a whole. Because when wounds like this are created, they're created in all of us, you know? That wound is shared. And maybe uh, one side uh, feels the wound more deeply and painfully, but the wound is still touching the oppressor as well. Uh, so uh, I was reading some of uh, quotes from some of the church fathers, and we'll look at them later, 
but I read them with such deep shame. And, and I think it's important to say that if I really thought it was an either or, if I thought that um, it was either Judaism or Christianity, if I thought to be a Christian I had to embrace anti-Semitism, or that you know, or the or, or Judaism that there was an either or equation, I would renounce Christianity in a heartbeat. Um, and I think it's really important to say that I, I don't think it's an either or. I don't think this is intrinsic to the Christian tradition or the teachings of Jesus. But I think it's plagued it from extremely early on uh, because of some of these family systems we're going to dig into. Um, but I just want to say that up front. If I thought to, to wear these symbols and embrace this tradition, I had to reject Judaism, I would happily cast off Christianity. Um. Uh, so all I want to do is hug him in general. <laughs> I know. It's so helpful. I want to adopt him. <laughs> now I'm blushing. So... The situation, the scene we have to set to dive into this conversation is it's really hard to get our heads around because it's the flip of what we know. We know Judaism as the small persecuted minority and we know Christianity as the powerful oppressor. And it's really hard to get our minds around the fact that early on the situation was almost flipped. You know, Christians, um, at this point not even called Christians, you know, followers of this, in this Jesus movement, they were a small emerging minority, and uh, they, they were uh, initially being sort of, one, one uh, sort of argued with within the Jewish community, and then they started being pushed out of the synagogues. They started being rejected as heretics. Um, and so that set up in these early Christians an initial us versus them uh, sort of thinking. And it's not present in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is constantly trying to overcome the us versus them thinking. You know, he's able to, as he's being crucified, he's able to say to the Romans who have nailed him on the cross, God forgive them for they know not what they do. He resists falling into the us versus them dualistic mind. And you see it throughout the whole ministry, him resisting that impulse to fall into us versus them thinking. Uh, but then the situation Christianity emerges into which is the early fledgling movement moving into persecution and being pushed out of their communities, us versus them just comes in in full force. Uh, of course, then Christianity gets recognized by the empire, and it becomes the new dominator. It becomes the new oppressor. And um, those seeds of anti-Semitism, they're certainly sown in the Christian scriptures themselves. There's no two ways around it. You see the impulse um, starting within the New Testament narratives. It's not full-blown, but it's there. And then once they get power, that narrative does become full-blown. Uh, and I want to look at some of the passages that, that, that tackle that. Do you have any... any uh, no, you, no, I just want to keep going. It's great. So... Shall we pass these around? Yeah, we're going to pass these around. Take half that way. Um, uh, some people might need to share. Yeah, I think, yeah, we, we have such a large group today, so we may need to share. Okay, that's going around the center. I'll send these around here, and then we'll meet up somewhere. And did I keep one? Let me get one for myself. So, some of these passages uh, are, the first group of passages 
and you'll see them shortly. The first group are looking at the question, who killed Jesus? Because we know one of the big painful points of narrative, uh, it's been the, the claim uh, that the Jews killed Jesus. Uh, and, and even worse, it's been called deicide. The Jews killed God because Jesus is God incarnate. Um, and so I want us to sort of pull back from that history and look at the texts themselves and see what the Gospels say about who was involved in the death of Jesus, because this has been one of the huge points that has created a wound. And then I want us to look at the language of the Apostle Paul, who really sets up uh, what would also uh, give momentum to anti-Semitism. He sets up a conversation of faith versus the law, or faith versus Torah, um, and that puts a wedge between the traditions. And then finally, we'll look at some quotes from the Church Fathers where you see this becoming full-blown, full-blown, outright anti-Semitism. <coughs> so how are we doing with sheets? Most people have one? Yeah, I have about four left. Okay. Um, so I just want to, I think, read a few of these. And I actually, I had another one and I've left it. I <coughs> had the earliest account of the crucifixion that we have comes from the Gospel of Mark. Here I've given some quotations from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. So, shall we take turns reading these? Shall we just hear them in one voice? One voice. Yeah, okay. no, one voice is fine. One? Yeah. Can I just ask, starting out reading from the Gospels, yeah. but do we have a historical backdrop that <coughs> aside from the Gospels, Mm -hmm. historically of what went on? Because aren't the Gospels the sayings so of the, the, the gospel, The four narrative Gospels that are in the New Testament, they're compositions that were created, scholars right. think, as we looked at earlier, after the year 70, after the temple was destroyed. We think the first Gospel was written around that time, Mark's Gospel. And then a little later on, you get Matthew and Luke's gospel. And then probably a little later on, you get John's gospel. Um, they're not just sayings of Jesus. They're the story as well. So they've collected sayings from oral tradition. They've collected elements of story from oral tradition, woven them into a narrative form that moves from Jesus' baptism at the start of his ministry by John up to his crucifixion and then the resurrection accounts. And so that's what you get. And woven throughout are, are teachings and parables. But what I'm asking is, so, is that different than what we know from other historical... We, we have very little record historically about the events of Jesus in his life. There's, some, there's smatterings of references to John the Baptist and Jesus in the writings of Josephus. Right. Um, we don't have much else that gets us back historically to what was going on. Josephus helps paint a, a picture of first century Judaism and the various movements within Judaism, and it helps us situate what Jesus was up to, um, but it doesn't tell us more about him. Right. It's entirely possible that in Jesus' own lifetime, very, very, very few people knew about him um, because we have no historical corroboration from that time about the stories that are told in the Gospels. Furthermore, the four Gospels are each diff really different versions 
of the life of Jesus. And I think for first century Jews, that was not a problem. Any more than the fact that Genesis chapter 1 tells one story of creation, and Genesis chapter 2 tells another story of creation. They, they didn't have the same mindset that we have of needing the wanting to know what the real story is. That's not how their brains were organized. Does that make sense, everybody? So that having four different versions might have also just been a way of saying, here's one way it gets told, and here's another way it gets told. Uh, so, uh, but they are quite different, the four Gospels. Uh, I do want to clarify that as a starting off point. Mm -hmm. It's worth saying over and over again, just like we have no evidence of a historical Moses, there is none. A historical Moses. Right, and then there are no accounts from the time from other writers who were right. talking about Moses. The Egyptian times from 1300 BCE does not have any, we have no record in the historical record, right? We also have basically no record about Jesus in his life. We have the stories that get told about him. Right. And, and to clarify one point, Jonathan said the Gospels are very different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and they're called the synoptic gospels, synoptic. So syn means with, optic, seeing, means they see together. So they paint a remarkably similar portrait. That's largely because Matthew and Luke include Mark. They take Mark and weave it into their narrative. So Mark is the basis of Matthew and Luke as well. So they're very similar. Matthew and Luke expand it, but there's not a lot of variation there. John's gospel is the most different. It paints the the most different picture. It's also the gospel uh, where we start getting the, the phrase, the Jews start showing up mm -hmm. in John's gospel for the first time. It's thought to have been written maybe around 90 or 100. Um, and this was around the time Christians were really formally being kicked out of the synagogues and the traditions were staking separate identity claims. Uh, the term used there is Judaioi, if I'm saying it right, which is the, the uh, Greek term that can be translated Judeans or the Jews, either way. Um, but that's, that's where some of the anti-Semitism really uh, gets planted, is those seeds in John's Gospel where it will say something like, the disciples fled for fear of the Jews. Um, and... And at this point, Christians have a separate identity, and they are being kicked out of synagogues, and they are afraid of, of you know, the synagogue. Uh, but then later that flips, and suddenly they're in power. And then you read that with power, and it's a totally different thing. You know, it's one thing for the five-year-old kid to say to their older brother, I want to kill you. It's a different thing for the 25-year-old to say, I want to kill you. Um, that's nicely put. Okay. Do you mind if we get back up for a moment, yeah. Jonathan and Matthew? See, there's, a, there's something that's been bothering me for a while, and I have my own theories on it, but, but, but it's in context of what you're reading and what you're saying. We're talking about Jews and Judaism and Jews and Jews and Jews, mm -hmm. the way it's written. That's the brand that's used, Jews. Yeah. Yet the brand you're using is anti-Semitism. Now, a Semite, yes. I don't think is anti-Semitism because Arabs are Semites. And there's a lot more Arabs than Jews. So, Jay, and that's a 19th century word. Yeah, exactly. This was my point. We, we much more clearly could say anti-Judaism or anti... Yeah, but yeah, my, yeah. my point, Jonathan, and, and, yeah. and maybe you could help us. I have my own theories, but I'm stuck on it. 
who, first of all, who branded Semite? Mm. Because it's not, it's really anti-Jews, let's face it. Mm -hmm. So why are we calling it anti-Semitism? Because the majority of the Semites are not Jews, by a long range. Um, probably because of the intense Eurocentric mm -hmm. quality of 19th century Europe. Mm -hmm. They had Jews in their midst. Mm -hmm. The Jews were not considered to be authentic Europeans. Mm -hmm. And so they were, they were considered to be Oriental, meaning coming from the East, or Levantine, coming from the Levant, or Semitic, coming from the Semitic lands. The, the, and because the Jews were the, uh, were, were the scapegoat of 19th century Christian Europe, they didn't care whether they generalized or not. They, they, the, for them, the world centered around Europe, and everything else was to be, you know, was was either colonized or... So I don't think a lot of thought went into it, probably, Jay. Well, I think a lot of thought went into it. Because mm. if they were sending Jews in Europe to concentration camps, and they were... No, no, 19th century. 19th century. Go back. Okay. Early. Go back. Okay, okay, even go back to the 18th century. 19th century. 19th century. If there was a lot of discrimination and segregation and hate and, as you call, anti-Semitism, you could then have... If it wasn't for the... Semite is an ethnic thing. Jews, That's right. Jews is a religious thing. If it was anti-Jews, then Jews could turn to... Let me speak to this, then. What happens in the 19th century is the beginning of racialized anti-Judaism. Until the 19th century... Okay, uh, this is a digression, yeah, yeah, go, but it's important. Sorry, sorry about this, but okay, listen. We're going to hold we, this against you. No. We... <laughs> we... The ideas of race, ra racial identity, um, national identity, are modern concepts. If you were in the body of the church before the modern period, you were a Christian. That was your identity, right? But what happens in the 19th century is that the idea of race and nation become dominant as the way we organize people in our minds. And so what happens to anti-Judaism, which wasn't called anti-Semitism until the 19th century, uh, uh, is that what had been a religiously based form of uh, discrimination, um, oppression, uh, now tr it, it carries into this new organization where it's not religion which is discriminated against primarily, but ethnicity or race. And so the Jews get rebranded as a race. Hitler takes that to its ultimate denouement, right? Which is that because until then, it was basically possible, even though we have stories of the Inquisition where it's not so clear, for a Jew to renounce Judaism and become a Christian and then more or less escape the anti-Judaism of the church, right? After the racializing of Jewish identity, Jews can no longer escape their identity, even if they converted. This is a product. Um, that's huge. Yeah. That's this huge. is a product of the racialization of anti-Judaism in the 19th century as a product of how we are reorganizing how we think about groups of people. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, that's huge. Because and so, the, so Hitler's anti-Semitism, there is a direct link to the anti-Judaism of Christianity. 
yeah. right? Because it's the inheritor of it. Mm -hmm. But it's also not the same thing. Um, and uh, uh, th that's not to let the church off the hook. I'm saying it, it morphed. Mm -hmm. And we see that morphing going on now in the like 20th century, just, and I'm not going to, and I, this is not a political um, uh, position paper. This is an observation with what was once the isolation of the Jews by the Christians and the scapegoating of the Jews, which was part of Christian theology throughout the Middle Ages, has become, at the United Nations, the isolation of Israel and the scapegoating of Israel. You can draw a direct line to that, and I don't want to go in further than that, but it's amazing the resilience of various oppression. Think about this feminist backlash or about what's happening to in racial issues in this country, but that's a whole other lecture. But I hope that clarifies a bit. Thank you. Yeah, I have a thing. So that's extremely helpful for me to see that anti-Semitism, because it is a racial category, that say you have a, a group of Jewish folks who convert to Christianity, you can still be against them because they're still Semites. Exactly. So it actually, it's a, it's a even more, it's even deeper, right. you know? Right. It's, yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Its awful conclusion was you, the science of eugenics, right. which, was to in, which was trying to prove that different racial groups were fundamentally different and inferior to other racial groups. That's where that led, ultimately. And the Nazis used those books tremendously. Yes, they there were many, there were many scholars of eugenics in, in the United States. I That's mean, it, it wasn't just a German phenomenon. There's a reason why the world was so uninterested in saving the Jews once they knew what was going on. If you change your religion, you can't change your DNA. Right. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. But there is no evidence that, Ju that Judaism, even though we, have a, a, we do have a genetic link to our, our Judean ancestors, that's been proven by genetic testing. Um, there's there's that Ju when you go to Israel, and you see every possible shade of skin of Jew there, because that is the Ju Israel has been the place where the exiles have collected. That in the intervening centuries, they picked up the racial characteristics of every society they lived in mm -hmm. through intermarriage and other uh, you know forced or unforced. Um, and so there is, there is no such thing as a Jewish race. It doesn't exist. It's an invention. But of course, there's good evidence that, ra that the idea of race is an invention besides. Right, but, but that's, that's why I challenge this anti-Semite. So, so we are, no that's right. So we are using the term anti-Semitism, but Jay actually made a great contribution to this. We're going to call it anti-Semitism with the understanding uh, uh, that, uh, of, of the context of the origin of that word. Um, and it's very important. Thank you. Let's and it's also it helped. Yeah, please. Let's call it anti Jews or something. Anti Judaism? Sure. Yeah. At the time you're talking about. Okay, shall yes. we? Well, the will time that be clarifying? We're talking about, what we're talking about in the early centuries of the church and moving into the Middle Ages, we're not yet to this. Okay. This concept. So, so yes. let me say it's something a, else. It's a retrojection of yeah, sorts. Yeah, it's a retro. So, okay, let's try it. Let's call it the anti-Judaism of the early church. <laughs> yeah. I think that's worthwhile. And that brings up the point that the word for Jew, as translated in the Gospels, is Judeoi, which means Judean. Right. 
I read a fascinating book last year by a, a really good scholar about the emergence of Judaism as a religion in the first century. The idea that it was a book on, on the emergence of, the, because until the first century, you couldn't, there's no such thing as conversion to Judaism. When the, when the Romans talk about Judeoi, they're talking about Judeans. That means people who either live in Judea. It's a localized or phenomenon. A localized People, people who happen to Judeans who happen to also live in other parts of the Roman Empire and still feel an allegiance and a connection to their homeland of Judea. What about Ruth? Uh, when you read Ruth, when she says, "Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God," um, that's not conversion. That's joining. The rabbis make that into conversion, but that she's. Um, let me talk more about that later uh, with you. When you read it in context of, say, 8th century BCE, it's, she is not converting. The rabbis use her as the idea of being able to become a proselyte and convert to Judaism emerges in the first century. Uh, they use the story of Ruth as, for that purpose, but um, it, it's, there, there is no, there's no becoming a Jew. There's becoming a Judean. But that's very distinct from Judaism described as a faith system as opposed to the Christian faith system. It's, uh, the, it, it, it's, it's hard to... This book was very helpful because... The, and I'm trying to remember the name of it because what he concludes is that we can't pinpoint exactly when this transformation happened, but it's happening in the first, in the first hundred years or so of the Common Era where being a Judean is different now, and being a Jew is something that it's becoming. Um, and I'm sure it's also a product of our exile and the redefinition of who we are since we don't have our homeland anymore. What's it mean to be a Judean? <laughs> Think about Jews in the wake of the year 70 uh, and their sovereignty des destroyed, trying to figure out what, what do we do now. And one of those things is the rabbis, in, the rabbis basically redefine what being a Jew is. That is a fascinating subject, and I'm not talking too articulately about it. Well, and this is also, this is, bears on the point that Susan Auchincloss made at the close of last week's conversation when she was talking about the work of retranslating some of these passages that are read in public Christian liturgies, um, and, and often it's this eudaioi term. And, and so the point, her point wasn't, we need to, you know, uh, artificially rewrite the scriptures and pretend they don't say what they actually say. She was saying we actually need to get back under the surface of the text and realize that some of the terms there don't mean the same thing that they mean for us today and retranslate them in that light. So to retranslate the Jews as uh, Judeans or often to see the context of one of those phrases, which is often a very specific reference to temple authorities, um, to retranslate it, temple authorities. Um, and then when those are proclaimed in Christian worship, it no longer sort of has the resonance of anti-Judaism um, that, that comes across in the current translations. Do you want to look at this? Yes. Yeah. I just, could you just go over those dates again for the Gospels? Mark? Oh, sure. Mark, and these are rough estimates. These are rough scholarly estimates. Mark, around the year 70. Jesus would have been crucified around the year 30. So that's 30, 40, 50, 60, 40 years later. Um, then Matthew and Luke, roughly 80, 90. 
Um, John, maybe roughly 100, but those are all rough scholarly estimates. The earlier layers of the New Testament are not the Gospels, they're the epistles, the letters. So the letters of Paul, of Peter, of James, they form an earlier layer. And the key date to keep in mind is that Jerusalem was destroyed between the years 66 and 70. So in some ways, these, these tellings are, are, are influenced. influenced by, in the wake of, responding, reacting to that. And so there's a sense of catastrophe in the air. Right, right. Yeah. So, so before we actually look at what the Gospels say, flip to the back of your sheet. Okay. And look at anti-Semitism in the Church Fathers. I, I was ashamed to even copy these words, but I, I realized how important it is that we read them. Um, and, and, and see where things wound up very quickly, and then we can go back to the sort of tangled roots of the Gospel texts. And date these guys for us? Okay, and I may ask for help from other fellow clergy. Um, Origin is maybe third century. Um, so the 200s. 200s, yes. Origin's 200s. Um, St. Gregory here. This is, I guess, Gregory the Great. So that's also 8th century. Okay. And John Chrysostom, I want to say is maybe third or fourth century. Mm-hmm. St. Augustine the same. So this is early on, but this is, you know, couple hundred, two, three hundred years into the Christian movement. Um, so those are, yeah, rough dates. And then Gregory coming later. Okay. But this is where things got to. And, and, and again, feel how these hit you as sensation in your body. Their rejection, the Jews, of Jesus has resulted in their present calamity and exile. We say with confidence that they will never be restored to their former condition, for they have committed a crime of the most unhallowed kind in conspiring against the Savior. And and I just want to say, so the Greek name Judas, who is the one who uh, betrays Jesus, what is that in Hebrew? Yehuda, Jew, Judean. Right, so that name is not chosen by accident in the gospel, in my well, opinion. There's, yes, there's a, there is a question. Um, are we dealing with an historical person, Judas Iscariot, which has, of course, been the consensus for most of Christian history? Um, some revisionist scholars would say perhaps Judas is a, a sort of created scapegoat in a way um, that symbolizes Judaism as a whole. That's a theory. Um, we can't say. Judas was also a common name. There are other Judases mentioned in the Gospels. There's um, uh, Judas yeah. called Iscariot, Judas... Right. Thaddeus. Yeah, Thaddeus, Judas. So there are Judas Thomas. Um, right. Ju- so a number of Judases. So it wouldn't have been impossible that we're dealing with right. a historical figure. But, I'm just but sens- the, the layer of meaning, it's hard to... Right. I'm miss. just sensitive. Yeah, well... <laughs> when, when did the phrase the Jews hey. killed Christ start? When did that start as a separate sort of phrase? Uh, well, we see it read right on. here. Very, well, let's, let's, re, let's just read on. But it, was it earlier than this? Hold on. Let's, we'll get to that. So we're, we'll so get we're gonna, to that. So we're going to dig back into it. When we look at the Gospels, we'll look at how things were being said in the first century. Now we're moving out really in the third century. So I, I would guess we start by, by the second century. By the time uh, late first century, Christians and Jews are really formally parting ways and Christians are no longer worshiping in the synagogues. So that's when that shift occurs, towards the end of the first century, and it really gets formulated in the second century. 
Jews are slayers of the Lord, murderers of the prophets, enemies of God, haters of God, adversaries of grace, enemies of their father's faith, advocates of the devil, brood of vipers, slanderers, scoffers, men of darkened minds, leaven of the Pharisees, congregation of demons, sinners, wicked men, stoners, and haters of goodness. Okay. Writings, writings for the scholars of. I'm guessing these were in sermons that the. Right, right. Were they given to the world? I'm almost certain these are quotes from sermons. And and these men, these names are great saints and fathers of the Christian church. This is Saint Gregory. These aren't these aren't obscure names. These are yeah yeah exactly. These are. You know, people who are still revered and given saints' days on our calendar. You know, they get feast days in the church year. Whoever read this. Yeah, St. John Chrysostom has written some of the most beautiful prayers of the church. We still often, in the Episcopal Church, one of his prayers is including in our morning prayer service daily. But now listen to this. I know that many people hold a high regard for the Jews and consider their way of life worthy of respect at the present time. This is why I am hurrying to pull up this fatal notion by the roots. A place where a whore stands on display is a whorehouse. What is more, the synagogue is not only a whorehouse and a theater, it is also a den of thieves and a haunt of wild animals. Not the cave of a wild animal merely, but of an unclean wild animal. When animals are unfit for work, they are marked for slaughter. And this is the very thing which the Jews have experienced. So there's, oh boy. that leads you right to the Holocaust in no time. Do you know where my heart space is right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, say, where, where is it? It's hardened. You say, hardened yeah. hearts of Pharaoh? Yeah. Well, I feel like my heart is so hardened that if I were, that there is no way there could be any mm-hmm. movement or mm-hmm. clarity or mm-hmm. anything at the moment. Stagnant. <clears throat> well, I actually, I feel totally shocked because I grew up in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, and I went to an elementary school where there was very few Jews, so most of my friends were not Jewish. And sometimes they would visit my Sunday school. Ours was on Sunday, it was Reform Judaism. Sometimes I would visit their Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And I slept at their house, they had sleepovers at my house. What, what decade? Oh, in the 50s. In the 50s, okay. I, uh, I never experienced Mm-hmm. Anything like mm-hmm. this, maybe mm-hmm. I don't know, but I mean, I'm I'm totally shocked. By the fifties, the currents were changing. The conversation was changing. Um, the the anti-Semitism, the uh, you know, the the church's anti-Semitism was softening, and it was then that Vatican II opened and actually formally formally denounced anti-Semitism. So uh, you know, a new tone is set. Uh, around that and, and it was the height of understanding America as the melting pot. So there was also an American, uh, not everywhere, there was, but there was also, just hold on, hold on, there was also a, um, a current afloat that um, uh, an American value of, of uh, living together in some places, I guess in her neighborhood in Cincinnati. We don't all have the same experience. No, no, no. 
Well, I, I realize that. But no, no, no. I'm, I'm looking at people's heads shaking yeah. around the room because that wasn't their experience. Well, that's, that's but it. I, I bless had, you. I had to tell my experience. And actually, it started in 1948 was when I went mm -hmm. first. Yeah, yeah. Before we all go, how horrible. Um, go, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we read this quote from St. Gregory, and instead of putting Jews in there, mm -hmm. now this is not going to be true for everybody in this room, but you know, it's for some of us, if we imagine putting the Tea Partiers, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Donald Trump, mm -hmm. and read this description, it's not that far off from what we are still doing. No. If we put the tea parties in there, the tea partiers aren't being forced into ghettos and, and into gas chambers. No, but uh, I, I want to say... This is how it starts, though. That's uh, my point. And okay. I want to bounce off what you're saying, which is that when I was reading this, I was thinking about every screed against some other group, whether it's, whether it's, whether it's Arab, Arabs causing, calling Jew, Jews or Israel's like, you know, monkeys and, uh, you know, or whether it's the stuff you read about white people writing about African American oh. Africans or African Americans or this women. stuff or when you men about women oh. or uh, about gay or people or what well sure sure uh, I'm just saying it's that it's different when the oppressed this person says frame of mind these days and I just don't want I don't want to be complacent I don't want us to be complacent and think Oh, we don't do stuff like that. Noted. It's very important that we see that we see these dynamics being transposed onto Islam today, and the way Muslims are being talked about in our um, in our national conversation. No, but it is being transposed onto all of Islam. So there's elements in our society that are putting this kind of language on all of Islam. Uh, you know, they're not your neighbors necessarily. This must be a human, genetic, a human condition because if you go to any Islamic country, That's right. you should hear what they say about Christians. Yep, you absolutely. Christians have, over the last, say, 15, 20 years, finally realized that, wait a second, this is something that is apparently... I, innate with human beings, if you want to put it that way, that we all do it, yeah. they all do it, but let's put that into perspective. Please. It's not the Americans saying all these terrible things about Muslims, because they are, but it's also these Muslims saying, and I'm not talking about hijab, you know, it cuts every way. Jihad, I'm talking about the peaceful Muslims. It cuts, it cuts every way across every group. It's true. Let's, so yes. where is our awareness at this moment? Let's just take a moment. Look what happened. Look what happened. Okay, so we have the conversation. We also want to have the ability to step outside of ourselves and look what happens. Hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. Step outside of ourselves for a second and look... And now look around at the people in here. No one's actually trying to hurt each other here, right? <laughs> this is what happens. This is what happens. I'm not immune. No one's immune. 
we want to encounter each other, we somehow have to last through that, somehow walk through that together. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm committed to that. I'm not interested in the other game of who can, who can insult the other the most or who can kill the other the most. I'm just not interested. That doesn't mean I don't want to be reality-based in looking at what's happening in my world, but I don't want to launch immediately into that uh, gamesmanship. So we're playing a different game. That's all. We're playing a different game which is noticing that, breathing, and continuing to talk. And if we can talk with our minds and our hearts, what a difference it can make. You've had your hand up for yeah. some time. Well, yeah, I just wanted to say, because especially what you've just said about how, how often is this politically motivated? And how much was this politically motivated? We often vilify a group mm -hmm. for power or to excuse our bad behavior towards them mm -hmm. or to dehumanize people to make it easier to exterminate mm -hmm. them or for many reasons that are political and don't have to do with the difference in belief. It has to do with the convenience of politics. And how much of this was political and not spiritual? And well, not really so much of what had happened by this point you know, we're moving to the period where Christianity is formally wedded to empire. And so Christianity becomes a political identity marker. Economic. Yeah. So that's, mm -hmm. that's certainly part of the movement, but I don't want to uh, pretend that that's all of it. Because even when Christians were still an oppressed group by the Roman Empire, they were already starting to say things like this about Jews. You know, and it was started with that seed of, they rejected us. They forced us out of the synagogue. We saw that Jesus was the Messiah, and they missed it. And all that starts, and then it grows into this hatred quickly, you know, and it becomes a fire. And at that point, it's, it's about falling into that dualistic us versus them mind. That, you know, it's so easy to get pulled into the dualistic mind and to get pulled into us versus them consciousness. And it's only with that eye of the heart that we can begin to see beyond that. We can begin to just see there's only a we. There's only an us. There's only an us. Um, Myra and Bob. So Myra first and then Bob. Um, this is an area where I've, I've thought about for many, many years. And for some reason, I, I, I'm sad to say that I think it's in, within the human condition to be, when you're attacked, to, be, to, to lash out. Yeah. And... I, I've, I've always thought about this. How can you um, genetically or whatever uh, change that human condition? Mm -hmm. You know, worldwide. I mean, not just the Jews or whatever it is. There's over centuries. This is always you're provoked and you lash out, and that's a, that starts the wars. And if you could do it by by the heart center. Go for it. I'm all, uh, Myra, all I know is that we have to start with ourselves. Yeah. That's all I know. It has to be with the people you are you're with every day. We there when you know the world. The fact that we, for me, one of the sublime things about hum, human beings 
is that we can even imagine that it could be different. <laughs> you know, but by projecting it out, why can't they get along? It, it won't get us anywhere. Bob? Uh, could it be that uh, as humans, most humans, we, we have a need for a belief in God? And if your God, or my God, is the God, and your God is a different God, your God's got to be wrong because it makes my God wrong. So you have all these different religions, and each one, God is right. This, this is it. And if yours is right, mine is wrong. But if I can kill you or diminish you, then my God is the God onward. And again, that emerges out of the dualistic mind, out of that dualistic consciousness that sees a necessary us versus them are a necessary either or. So is there any hope? We, we have the capacity, we have the capacity to move beyond that kind of thinking. And the question, how do we actually do that? You know, literally speaking, forget whether or not there's a spiritual reality, forget whether there's a, there's, there's a God. We know scientifically that contemplative practice, heartfulness practice, mindfulness practice, literally evolves our brains to uh, higher, uh, higher centers of consciousness. So if you look at the evolutionary layers of the human brain, the earliest is you know, what we call the reptilian brain, the lizard brain, and it governs our fight or flight responses, and it governs that kick into us versus them thinking. And it's there, it serves a, a function. You know, we, we need it to survive. Um, you move up, there's the old mammalian brain, there's eventually you get to the sort of higher centers, the neocortex, the prefrontal lobes, where really creative thinking and the capacity for sort of unit of non-dual seeing is located. And contemplative practice, when a stimulus comes into your field, you know, someone's calling you whatever it is, someone's saying, Jews are slayers of the Lord, murderers of the prophets, immediately that wants to get routed into that reptilian brain and go into fight-or-flight mode. A contemplative practice cultivates enough inner spaciousness that when that stimulus comes in, you're not fused to your small egoic reactive self. You have spaciousness that comes in, and rather than routing yourself immediately into your oldest, least evolved part of your brain, that stimulus can be processed by the higher centers of your brain, and you can respond from a different place without falling into reactivity and dualistic thought. And so spiritual practice, you know, literally is a way forward. It literally does uh, help us move into more spacious thinking. Nicely put. And I would say the word spiritual practice or a contemplative practice, please don't put a boundary around that because anybody who walks in the woods to get their head clear right. is doing a contemplative practice. Right. It doesn't have to this look is like... not sitting on a cushion. It's not like saying the right words. Hold on a second. So I just, it's very important to say this over and over again. I feel like getting older is a contemplative practice. Um, and, and that... And just through the process of living and wanting to be the best person I can be, I'm improving at this. So please don't put that into some like, oh, uh, um, this is where that happens. It happens because we see it as a possibility and we want to reach for it. That's how it happens. It doesn't have to look like 30 minutes sitting on a, a Zen cushion. You're good at that. Yeah, it can be yeah. anything that cultivates spaciousness 
heart-centeredness that cultivates non-reactivity right. leads you there. Someone's had, a lot of us have had good therapists who learned us how to get some perspective on ourselves. That's another way of saying it, okay? So this isn't hocus-pocus. This is about becoming the people we, wanna, we, we sense that we want to become. So smile and breathe at someone, or breathe and smile at someone. <laughs> breathe at someone, that's good. Uh, all right, uh, hold on. Do we want to look at more texts? No. Oh, no, I was asking him. Yeah, it's not up to you. I never read those texts. I never heard of them. So, so the, the only other thing that might be helpful for us to look at text-wise, and we've got, let me see, we've got about 20 minutes left together. Um, Don't worry, we're so, solving it all. So knowing that we have 20 minutes left together, reevaluate the question you had. And if there's something that's really burning, let's still hear a couple more, a few more questions. Okay. So I feel that, geez, I had no idea that there were people in the background writing these horrible things. And these weren't people in the background. These were people in the foreground. These were people on the front lines of the Christian movement who were saying these th kinds of things. And that's why it's so important to, to be honest about that and to read them. Because, no, it isn't the mainline teaching today. It hasn't been for a, quite a long while. Hello. But we need to, well... The mainline teaching really formally changed in the 1950s. Okay, that's very recent, very recent. When the Church issued Nostra Aetate, which is a document that the Vatican, Second Vatican Council issued, that affirmed the truth of all religious traditions, said that wherever truth is found, it is of the Holy Spirit. It said that the Church honors the Jewish people, the Church honors the Muslim people. You know, and it, it made great attempts to, uh, to reconcile this point. It still held that there was a fullness of truth found in Jesus, uh, this Vatican document, but it acknowledged the validity and the existence of other traditions. So that started, what, 65 years ago, something like that? So it's been a very recent um, advance. That said, all Christians throughout history didn't hold these views. As you see, lots Chrysostom, lots of people didn't hold these views, right. People didn't even know you see, stuff. John Chrysostom, the assumption is he's talking about his fellow Christians. I know that many people hold a high regard for Jews. So obviously, obviously. many Christians felt otherwise. But it's, yeah, so, <laughs> but it's important to acknowledge that great saints who were respected were able to say these things, and that they became embedded in the tradition, and that, that they paved the way to something like the Holocaust. 
I guess I want to add another contextualizing well, comment. Before that. Another contextualizing comment. The 50s to today is a period that we are really, as Americans, absolutely blessed to have been able to live in. Right? A period of unprecedented um, safety in our country. Regardless, of, you know, think, keep your perspective. A period of where, um, except for the Vietnam War, which I was a little too young for, uh, a period, and, and there was a Korean War, but a period of no, you know, no, no world wars, mm-hmm. right? A period of unprecedented uh, economic that's, expansion. That's debatable. <laughs> no uh, world wars. Well, what I mean is that, in them right is that now. I was never, all I'm saying is that here in America, we are the beneficiaries of being able to sit in this room and actually even talk about this stuff. That wasn't happening until our lifetimes in any substantial way. It was, and it's, a, it's a very modern and postmodern phenomenon that we're blessed to be taking advantage of. Um, if we're going to get into the, you know, I just started reading this big fat book called Constantine's Sword. Oh yeah, which is Very James Carroll's history yeah. of of anti-Judaism as it was perpetrated by the church through the millennia. It's like we don't have to argue the historical record. The 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 question that we get to face is, okay, that happened. What now? Yeah. Right? We have an opportunity. So, we're taking it. We're all here in the room. What, and what we're doing is amazing. This is a bold leap forward. The fact that we're talking in this way, together, Jews and Christians, yes. having this conversation, this is huge in the history of the universe. <laughs> you know, In the 16, 17 billion year unfolding of the universe, and in the history of this planet, the short history of this planet, we're at this edge of a time, after the process of globalization has been initiated, that we can think in new ways that human beings have not ever been able to think in before. So, it's big. Let's go for it. Wait, get, no, okay, here. I just want to say something about, um, now, in recent times, the word Christian is becoming more and more associated with evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say assholes, but... <laughs> <laughs> you can bleep that out of the recording. <laughs> This, this modernization of the church toward their attitudes, I don't really know what the evangelical... Evangelical... Uh, what their opinion... I mean, maybe uh, some of these things that are here, some of their ideas or not. We I can't speak. We can't speak. Matthew can't speak. None of us can speak for Christianity or even for... However, we could get a panel of... Based on my limited reading and listening, we could get a panel of evangelical Christian leaders in here who would disagree about many things regarding all of these questions. So I think the generalization... I don't think you can generalize. um, uh, Is based on my limited experience. But, however... No. The sort of extreme anti-Judaism you see in these statements would be disavowed by most Christians of most stripes today. Today. Because today. we're lucky to be Jews living today in the United States. You see, we're, 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 just, we're just so damn lucky. Um, but like this first one, or, Origin, that 
where he's saying that calamities are due to, you know, people not doing the right Right. Thing. You hear that now, where if there's a tornado, right, it's God's saying, punishment. People aren't praying hard enough. That's right. That's right. But the point of it's this, a, po- a pre-modern kind of magical but, thinking. But the point of what Arjun's saying here, that uh, uh, they will never be restored to their former condition, and it has result, their rejection of Jesus has resulted in their present calamity and exile, becomes the theology of the church for many centuries, until this century. And so it becomes the official stance of the church throughout the the late antiquity and middle ages and up into the modern period that the Jews' debased condition is a product of their having rejected Jesus. Jesus. And it becomes a justification for keeping the Jews in a debased condition. So it's important to understand that this becomes Christian theology that is then leaned upon in order to maintain the active oppression of the Jewish minorities in Christian, under Christian control. So it's very important to understand that we, moder- we are living in an unprecedented, frightening, but also amazing period of globalization where boundaries are falling and... Uh, for better and for worse, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but it is unprecedented in terms of how we view each other, the idea that there's one planet, one ecosphere, one human family. These are all completely modern contemporary ideas, everybody. Although, um, all along, you've had now you're seers, you know, <laughs> mystics, more evolved souls who were able to say these things. Proclaiming they it. just weren't the main voices but or my, the predominant my point voice. is the, the, the pers- but the stepping back I want us to keep doing is to practice among other kinds of expanded consciousness historical expanded historical consciousness so that we don't continually retroject our own experiences right now onto how that things were in the past in order for history not to repeat itself right. we have to be able right. to do that we have to not just expand our consciousness in terms of our present, you know, universal situation, right. but also expand our consciousness so that we can think critically in ways where that was then and this is now, and be able to do that. That's very important. I know I've said that over and over here. It's crucial, and it requires educating ourselves. This is not just heart work, but intellectual work. Uh, Gail has for some time been wanting to jump in, and then Joy and Jay and okay, Gail. Steve. Steve. <laughs> obviously of incredible importance. And yes, for us to be very aware that it is a human tendency to see the other and then to be quite willing to attack and do whatever to the other. But I think what what you're trying to do so much here is so important. And I was just sitting here thinking that at the same time period, well, later actually, but among the Muslims, or the whole Ottoman Empire, during this, most of this period, say, 6th century on, um, Jews were perfectly accepted, and there was no problem throughout the whole area that was dominated by... Well, that's overstated. However, that's why it gets called in Jewish history the Golden Age of Islam, was a golden age for Jews in Islamic countries. So that our particular, most of our history 
in the West, which is where we've lived in the West as against the Middle East, mm -hmm. has been our persecution by Christians. Mm -hmm. That has been Jewish history. And, and we're talking not just ghettoization and discrimination, we're talking murder mm -hmm. again and again and again. You know, the Crusaders coming through on their way to Jerusalem and killing everybody along the line they could get at. Um, and I was struck when the conversation shifted so quickly to our tendency ourselves to do this kind of other mm -hmm. and how we have to all be on board against it. What I was struck by was how difficult it is for us sitting here right now to actually read what Matthew was reading aloud and allow ourselves to face it. Mm -hmm. okay? So when you talk about a historical perspective, facing that, for many of us who particularly grew up here in the 50s and later, we don't have much personal connection with this. And unless our parents were very close to immigrant, we didn't get to hear it from them either, the same way. And although we all knew about the Holocaust, for many people in this room, it was not close. Mm -hmm. okay? So I want to emphasize, when you said go back, Matthew, to where your heart is, what's in your body right now, I think it's very important for us to pay attention to how difficult this is, and we don't want to sit with it. Yeah. Neither Jews nor Christians. Right. We want to. Oh, it's all we cleaned it up, and we don't. We don't exactly. like that anymore. And we're now moving let's forward. Worry about what we do to other people. Right. I don't. I think we need to sit with it. Mm -hmm. That's all I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, we're sitting with it. And it can be uncomfortable. But there's always a cell phone to distract us. <laughs> it's perfectly natural and normal to feel, to read something like that and to feel anger and Hatred uh, and pain and hurt all well up. I read it and I felt shame. I drove over with a dark cloud over my head thinking about, in some way, I represent all those words, you know? And what I might feel is just a shadow of what those of you who are Jewish probably feel in hearing those words. Uh, if I heard that said about my tradition, and my tradition had had the history that the Jewish traditions had, it would be very hard for me to think kindly about a Christian person, you know, or, or if the tables were turned. But if I were in the other shoes, I don't think I could think kindly about a Christian person. And I might hear them sitting up here saying nice things, but it'd be hard for me to accept or believe it, you know. Um, I think, well, what the hell do you know? You know, like you're, yeah, you're the, you know. So who's, who's we white man? Right. Um, this is, as Mr. Spock would say, fascinating, um, because it 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 uh, indicates how much connecting, talking, true sharing we need to do with each other mm -hmm. to move along on this front. And it's okay 
and it's good in most situations in society for people just not to kill each other, right? And to live and let live. But if we want to do more, like we want to do, okay, yeah. we're we, looking at it. And we can't pretend it's gone, you know? We've made huge strides. I grew up hearing people talk about Jewing someone down on the price of something, you know, people still say these kinds of, you know, it's not gone. Um, there are all kinds of, you know, and you're, and we're not traveling in the Muslim world again, where, where it's, it's just part of their conversation now, but, or in Western Europe, or in Western Europe, woof, I'm telling you, we're in a nice little bubble here, so you two have been waiting so long, did you say it was Chris, Steve, Steve? Yeah. Uh, and then Jay. Again, this is my first time. And then Pauline. Um, Jonathan, I would take issue with you that the period from the 50s to now and all that we have is uh, uh, basically luck. Um, I think, of course, there's luck. No, I called it my luck <laughs> to live in this time. Uh -huh. I didn't say, no, no. On the contrary. Uh, that's why I'm still a committed American citizen, despite all the evidence to the contrary, because I love this experiment in... Uh, the possibility of humans figuring out how to live together uh, and ev in an immigrant society. Well, that's another. Uh, I that I secondary. Uh, my first question was you. You had said about competing gods, and my and that is the basis for much of what we've talked about today. And doesn't that indicate that there's a prevailing wisdom to be an atheist? And to not, doesn't that cut through all of the, no. the no. term? Well, uh, think about communism. Uh, it seems to be a human predilection to have found the truth, whatever you call it, and then to impose that truth on other people and kick ass for the people who don't agree with your truth. So, this is a much longer conversation. It doesn't excuse the people who use God as a bludgeon, but uh, atheists have done just fine. Um, in the absence of having, calling their God the best. So I consider it a problem, but not unique to, to the idea of to, to worshiping God. It seems in the 20th, 19th and 20th century that it was transferable to other ideologies. Uh, I'll leave it at that, and we can have that conversation for the rest of our lives, too. Uh, Jay? Yeah, yeah, I, I just, you guys gave me so many segues into the now of anti-Semitism. So if we could just spend a moment on the now, because as somebody mentioned, in Western Europe, anti-Semitism is on a high peak. In England, I saw numbers, something like 1,100 incidences just this year. And you know, the popular, Jewish population is small in, in England. In Brussels, I saw some documentary in which Jews can't, uh, are afraid to walk with yarmulkes in the street. It's true. In France, we saw, yes. we saw the terrorists. In the so just in the interest of time, your point, Jake. So my point is that you think this language is still impacting what we're seeing in, 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 um, in Europe today. I consider myself a student of the dynamics of oppression. It's something that's fascinated me since I was in college. The way you see racist language in this country being repurposed over and over again, uh, despite the change, uh, despite the Voting Rights Act, or despite, despite these, these, these elements of society, I would say that Europe's anti-Semitism is akin in its, in its cultural DNA to America's 
racism against African Americans and people of dark skin. And it doesn't go away. It, and it has to be guarded against continually, and you have to become aware of the way old tropes get repurposed in new situations. So, so it would be naive for me to think any more than we think that sexism went away because of the feminist revolution, right? It's like these things are so sewn in to our social, that we have, we have a challenge always to combat it. Uh, uh, that's, that's been my sort of m personal mission statement for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Pauline, you've waited very patiently. I'm not gonna make it short because, but this is what I wanna say. I think that it is so extraordinary and important and potent what went on here with the reading of these pieces and the honesty and embracement of the feelings that were evoked because I firmly believe that one of the reasons racism in this country maybe still exists is because we look at a black person across from us and don't acknowledge we see they're black and what that brings up and take it from there. Because we're believe, colorblind, right? I believe in and then you can't face the, the systemic issues underneath the. I believe in the spiritual place of the open heart that can bring to a great place. But I also believe that when there are scars, and every one of us in this room has been scarred by these things in different ways, and when they are scars that do not allow air, that do not allow an expression and a true healing, mm -hmm. that no matter how liberal, we all are great liberals, we all are great embracers, we are great thinkers, we are great understanders of human nature, but we also need to heal our own scars. And what's, what happened, especially with the reading in this room, was the beginning to say there's pus coming out of one of my wounds and I'd like to let everyone know and try to help me together to heal it. And that is extraordinary with that honesty. Mm. Thank you, Pauline. Now, I want to say, no, uh, uh, it's, because, we have one. It's not fair, really. Yeah. You give just a model, all of us have suffered from history. And we've suffered from two kinds of history. Yes. But we're acting as if there's only one kind of history, the one of power. And that really is the problem. Because we all are individuals with souls and spirits and our own history. And we have ways of having been loved and loving each other and understanding each other. Well, there are other systems other than the one of political power. And the real problem is that if we only look, we should look through political problems because that's what's going to get us. And if there's a knocking at the door, and if it isn't us, we better not answer. And you better know that. We better know that. That's true. However, there is another way also. Not, you can't even balance history and power, but you can at least begin individually. And there have been models that are not history. And they say, if you do not get, fit, if you get a group of people or an individual who has not solved the first thing of being a survivor, they're, they've suffered so much, they can, they're not even surviving. And they don't even believe they're surviving. That's a problem. They see dually. The second thing is sexually. 
if a person really believes a woman has no soul, then believe me, they're gonna do all sorts of things to women and children, whatever, and they have, and they're still doing it. That's the second place where if you can say, let us heal that, and that can only be done by groups of people willing, individuals willing. So here is survival, then there's sexuality. The third one is power. That is the hardest thing for people to get any kind of unified view of. They think it's them and us, just as we've been saying. Well, that power is so hard and is so prevalent now. It's in everything, economy, a social thing. I mean, look at our poor president, what he's had to go through because this whole thing and all the young boys who have died and people because of color. This is all that whole fear and opposite looking. So it's survival. A lot of people haven't survived, and they still haven't psychologically, and they're causing trouble. Sexually, they haven't figured it out that we're all really one thing. They still are killing each other, and they're still miserable about women and trouble. Power, look at the world. How many things have we done in our country, and we love our country, as you say, because it's an experiment, that we would not put our name to? Yeah. That we would say, oh my God, this is yeah. a disaster. Well, these are personal and social ways of looking at these three things. It takes a long time to get healed in survival, sexuality, and power. Once it's been healed or you see the opposite, then you go to the heart. The heart doesn't happen right away. The heart needs healing. You need to heal. Okay. We need to do that. Thank we need you, Joy. Get to that, and that's Thank what you. we're trying to do in this class. Now, that's what we're trying to do, which I will then use to conclude and give Matthew the last word. So, let's honor Matthew. He's come here in it. No, no, no. You don't have to clap or anything. Uh, he came here in his collar, representing Christianity as a clergyman, right, to share this with us. Um. We can't generalize about Christians, we can't generalize about Jews, we can't generalize, but we can honor, you know, honesty and, and courage and, and the desire to make a difference. It's like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all for the same. Thank you all for this time together because I am going to be away next week. It really has been wonderful, and it, it's, it's, you know, I came in uh, with the mindset, well, we're all liberal people, what work is there to be done? You know, we're all on the same page, and, and again and again, I've realized how important these conversations actually are, and these conversations really only are the tip of the iceberg. Like Joy is saying, we've got to move into the really deep healing of wounds that are beneath the surface and beneath the intellectual stuff we can, you know, chat about. So I, I hope that... You know, will some of us will come back together in March for that weekend, and that we'll be able to do some group work, some more intimate conversation around processing some of this at a deeper level, um, because it's true. Until some of those wounds have been healed, it's hard for the heart to open. Um, so I think we've done great work together, and I hope we keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. Next. Yeah. It's true. Now we're going to meet again next Thursday with Suzanne Guthrie and Susan Ockham Classmate. I, I, well, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'd love to talk about uh, Christmas. Um, and Hanukkah. And I'd love to talk about Hanukkah. 
uh, as a way to kind of close, let's focus on how we celebrate and what we do. And I, now, that is also a loaded subject. Uh, at the same time, it seemed like a nice topic to, uh, given the timing of our class, to make our agenda for next time. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And, and oh, yeah. We, we all, nice healing. Yeah. We also, we didn't go deeply into the text. You've got them. You can look at them. Um, it's uh, something for a, another conversation. Another semester. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Enjoy the sunshine on your face. And, and Carol. Oh, yes, Carol. About, About what? <laughs> oh, Carol and I are leading a weekend this weekend. Hey, everybody. Shh. Shh. Sorry. Carol and I are leading a weekend workshop starting tomorrow evening called The Torah of Broadway, Spiritual Wisdom from the Great American Songbook. And we are going to be singing our hearts out and uh, um, celebrating the most unusual Shabbat service. So registration is closed for that workshop, but we're, we're, we're going to uh, be doing it again in the future. <laughs>